It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hong Kong is one of the biggest, most densely populated, and richest cities in the world. But in recent years, the government in China has started to crack down on the freedom that Hong Kong enjoys, 26 years after Britain handed it over to Beijing. Hundreds of Hong Kong police raided the Stan News office in the early hours of Wednesday morning. Pro-democracy activists charged with conspiracy to commit subversion. Dozens have been arrested, prosecuted and jailed since China imposed the legislation last year. Millions of Hong Kongers responded with street protests. But those demonstrations dwindled after thousands of arrests, with many citizens even fleeing to Taiwan, another island facing an uncertain future in China's shadow. Now I have to leave Hong Kong forever. It breaks my heart. The question now is, how much of its freedoms will Hong Kong be able to hang on to? There is still a lot to fight for. Dennis Staunton, Irish Times China correspondent. The gap between the freedoms that they still have there and the lack of freedom here is a space that's worth fighting for, some of them believe. But the question is, what can they do? How can they do it? This is in the news from the Irish Times. Today, how far will China go in its crackdown on Hong Kong? Dennis, let's remind people of what the political situation in Hong Kong is right now. Hong Kong was a British colony until 1997, at which point the UK handed it back to China. But it didn't become a part of China like any other part of China. Instead, it was brought in under the concept of one country, two systems. And that meant that Hong Kong was granted its own constitution called the Basic Law. And that system, it was supposed to guarantee the continuation of certain things about Hong Kong that make it really very different from China. Things like the free press, independent judiciary, and of course, the continuation of capitalism. But in the past decade, there have been ongoing efforts by the Chinese government under Xi Jinping to undermine that independence and bring Hong Kong more under China's control. First of all, why? It was agreed in 1997. So why does the Chinese government feel the need to change the status quo in Hong Kong in this way? 
Well, the system that was agreed by the British and the Chinese before the British handed it over was known as one country, two systems. And so uh, Hong Kong would be part of China, but it would be run uh, in a different way. And so the British never introduced democracy to Hong Kong, but they did have the rule of law. And as you say, they had uh, various freedoms. And so the Chinese guaranteed that these freedoms would carry on uh, until, you know, for another 50 years, until uh, 2047. But the Chinese always interpreted the idea of one country, two systems slightly differently. So they always thought that one country was rather more important than two systems. So they were committed to keeping the two systems, but they didn't like the idea of Hong Kong being too separate. And they always maintained that it was very important that as time went on, that it should become more like the rest of China. And so uh, while they respected a lot of the autonomy, and that was an important part of of the system as far as China was concerned. Nonetheless, as time went on, uh, this office in Hong Kong called the Liaison Office, which is basically Beijing's representation in Hong Kong, it became more powerful. And they started to put pressure on the Legislative Council, which is the uh, kind of semi-democratic parliament in uh, Hong Kong. They put pressure on them to introduce various changes to make Hong Kong more like the rest of China. And how has the Chinese government gone about that? How has it gone about changing the law in Hong Kong? Well, there were a few things. One was that they tried in 2003 to introduce a national security law, which was part of the deal that uh, Hong Kong would introduce this. But then there were big public protests and they dropped this idea. But then later on in 2019, they decided that they wanted to introduce an extradition law, which would allow people to be extradited to mainland China. And this became a big flashpoint. And so there were big protests. And these protests were met with terrible police brutality. And that in turn led to further violence. And basically, Hong Kong was shut down for uh, long periods during 2019. And Beijing was leaving it to the Hong Kong authorities to deal with this stuff for a while. But then eventually, they lost patience. And they imposed a national security law in 2020. And this allowed them to completely crack down on the protests. It came around the same time as the COVID pandemic, so that kind of helped. But what it really meant was that these protests, which were very widespread and which were very popular in places like there were some uh, of the demonstrations that attracted 2 million people out of a population of 7 million. So they were enormously popular. So these were crushed. And in the process, democracy and the kind of budding democracy movement was crushed as well. So it's really clear that how the degree to which China sees itself as the important power in this. Yes. And so basically what they say is that we had to do this to, to protect national security and we had to do it to impose order. And of course, a lot of people in Hong Kong uh, had become impatient with the fact that, you know, the city was being shut down every so often, the entire city centre. And if you've ever been to Hong Kong, it's a very busy, it's a little bit like New York. There are these kind of uh, fairly narrow streets with tall buildings and it's quite humid. And so if you, if you have gridlock in the centre of it, it really does uh, bring things to a stand. And, still. and so what uh, really happened with the national security law was that they simply imposed a system which was where national security matters are, are concerned, and they interpret this quite widely, much more like mainland China than the system that had been operating in Hong Kong until then. Now, you've been writing about two criminal cases where people are being prosecuted under this 
relatively new law, the security law. And these cases are seen as watershed moments for Hong Kong. And they've been getting international attention for that reason, I think. So let's start with Stand News. That's one of the cases. What is Stand News? And what's the case about? Stand News was a free online news publication that operated in Hong Kong from about uh, 2014. They mostly did kind of political and social stories. They uh, they did a lot of kind of live streams and they were very big during the demonstrations doing these live streams from the scene where things were happening and they were able to report on how the police were responding. And they were very popular. And uh, at the end of 2021, the police came and they raided their offices and they raided the homes of uh, some of the editors. They arrested uh, two of the editors and they charged them not actually under the national security law, but under the sedition law, an old British colonial law that hadn't been used for a while. But they charged them uh, under that law. And what they said was that they were publishing articles which were seditious. They were causing public disorder and, uh, and that that was what they were doing. The reason this is important is there are two reasons, really. One is that they targeted this particular group of people who published some of the stories they were publishing were the same stories as everybody else was publishing, but they decided to pick on these. And so it was, so it's partly to do with their intention. But the other problem with it is that they were also targeting them for comments that were published in social media beneath some of these articles that they published. And so uh, the surviving independent media, there are about 11 independent uh, media organizations left, and they're very careful, but they uh, survive really on online advertising. And if they're not on social media, if they're responsible for what people say in comments on social media, the little revenue that they get is going to get snuffed out. They're just not going to be able to to function. And so that's another reason. But I think the third element in a way is that what it's a test for the judiciary. The judiciary in Hong Kong, they still operate a common law system that they inherited from the British and they still have judges who regard themselves as being independent. Now, if the judges, they've shown themselves to be independent in a few rulings recently where, for example, the government tried to ban a particular song which was being sung by the protesters and the uh, the judges overruled that. So if the judges in a political case, in a case with political implications like this, if they defy the government, then that's going to be a very good sign. It's going to give people who are trying to keep journalism going a little bit of confidence that maybe the limits are a bit looser than they thought. And this comes to the, in a way, the central point of uh, of what's happened in Hong Kong since the national security law was introduced. Nobody's no, sure exactly what the limits are. And people, everybody I meet there says, we don't know what the red lines are. And so, for example, I spoke to uh, an academic and he's you know quite senior and he's a, a political scientist and he said he's never had any censorship or, or any problem you know in mainland china if you're delivering a lecture you send the powerpoint to the authorities in advance to get it cleared that doesn't happen in hong kong but what is happening is that junior colleagues of his are getting a little bit nervous about what they're saying in class and i spoke to a secondary school teacher 
was a music teacher and he was talking about a conversation that was happening in the classroom about individualism to do with music. And the conversation, somebody, one of the kids who came from mainland China started a, a kind of a discussion about it and others then joined in and it soon started to veer into something like a conversation about democracy and he suddenly got nervous and he shut it down. So people are kind of self-censoring and part of what's going on, I think, at the moment in Hong Kong is that everybody's trying to work out what exactly the limits are. And this case and what the judges do is going to be important in setting out what those parameters are. Now, Stand isn't the first news outlet to close as a result of these laws, though, as you say, it's closed as a result of sedition laws and not the security laws. But in 2021, a paper called The Apple Daily, and I think this got quite a lot of international attention, was also shut down. Its editors were arrested. When that happened, there were long queues of people lining up to buy the final edition, a very symbolic gesture. There were protests. And that seemed very, very clear evidence that Hong Kongers don't like these changes. They don't like them at all. But at this point, the crackdown does seem to have been quite swift. Is there any fight left in the protesters? There is some. The protesters themselves are not protesting. They just, because as soon as anything happens, they're just, you know, it is snuffed out. And uh, so really, that kind of public protest is gone. It's just not happening. And in the same way, most political activity is not happening. But there are signs of life. So for example, the Democratic Party, which is one of the opposition parties, they decided that they wanted to stand in elections, these district elections, which are very local council elections, which are coming up in December. They tried to get onto the ballot and they failed to get on. Basically, the uh, authorities ensured that they weren't going to be able to. But the fact that they're trying means that there is a certain amount of fight. And so, you know, again, speaking to some of these democracy activists, one of them was saying to me, for example, that you know we compare what life is like now compared to what it was like before. And of course, it's terrible. But of course, if you compare Hong Kong, say, to Beijing, it's a very different place. It's still, you know, in Beijing, most of the internet is blocked. In Hong Kong, you can go on any website you like, and none of that is, is blocked. You can walk down the street and you can buy a copy of the New York Times or the Economist or the Financial Times. You can't do that here in Beijing. And so there is still a lot to fight for. The gap between the freedoms that they still have there and the lack of freedom here is a space that's worth fighting for, some of them believe. But the question is, what can they do? How can they do it? And they're all still kind of trying to feel their way around. And the same is true, actually, of journalists. And so one of the journalists I was talking to was saying that they're very careful about what they write about and what they report on. There are whole areas that they just don't go near. They don't criticize the government in Beijing. They don't criticize the chief executive of the government in Hong Kong. But they still do report or say they do court reports, which you can do in Hong Kong, which you can't do here in Beijing. They do uh, reports on things that are happening that affect people's lives, say, and local planning issues. So it's kind of local news, but it's still, it is independent, and it is still an area of freedom which you have there and which you have much less of here. Now, apart from those two big legal cases, there's another one, and that is the prosecution of 47 pro-democracy figures, and they're accused of a conspiracy to commit subversion. The case centres on that plan, I, I think you just referred to, to elect a majority of pro-democracy legislators 
despite the system being deliberately rigged against him. What actual crime are they accused of committing? And, you know, why does it matter? The idea was that they were going to uh, try to get people elected to the Legislative Council, which is the main uh, governing parliament in Hong Kong. And there is no sort of directly, fully directly elected system. Some of the, the members of the parliament are directly elected, but a lot of them are elected by panels, a little bit like the Shannon in Ireland. And so you've got to kind of get these kind of nominations. And what they were trying to do was to get the strongest, they were sort of organising primaries, to get the strongest list of candidates. The idea was that if they did get a majority in the Legislative Council, that they would block all legislation until the chief executive at the time, Carrie Lam, agreed to the demands of the demonstrators who were out in the streets who wanted various kinds of democratic reforms. And so the idea was that they would paralyze the system until they got what they wanted. And so the argument of the prosecutors is that under the national security law, this is subversion because they were trying to subvert the system. They were trying to make the system not work. And they were basically saying, if we don't get our way, this is a plot to get people in there so that if we don't get our way, then you won't be able to govern Hong Kong. And that, they say, is subversion. Those people, uh, you know, only 13 of the 47 were granted bail. The presumption under the national security law is against bail. So if you get arrested, you go to jail and you stay there. And these cases go on for a very long time and they've been waiting for a couple of years now. And there is a hearing uh, in late November, but it still could be quite a long time before uh, they're going to hear what's happening to them. And so this is, uh, again, an important case where the national security law is concerned because although these national security cases... They're in a, a kind of something like the, the special criminal court in that it's a, it's a three-judge panel and so you don't have a jury and there are certain different kinds of laws of evidence and everything else. But again, we're seeing, we're sort of testing in a way what exactly how this law is going to be uh, interpreted by the judges and implemented. And so that again is a case that's going to be very important. And these 47 pro-democracy people, are they high profile in Hong Kong? Would people know them? Some of them are well known, some of them are less well known. There's, you know, there are academics, there are people who were uh, politicians already. And so there, you know, there's a, there's a whole kind of variety of people. And some of them are, uh, are well known people, but some of them really not at all. And, uh, you know, and in every case, you know, in practically all of the cases, they're still uh, behind bars and, uh, you know, and not knowing exactly when they're going to get out again. And in some cases, they could face very long sentences. Coming up, what sort of future will China let Hong Kong have? I continue my conversation with Dennis Staunton. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Now, the one country, two systems deal for Hong Kong, that was an agreement between Britain, the colonial master of Hong Kong, and China. It was agreed in 1997. And the idea was that it would last until 2047, which is still a quarter of a century away. And I think the thinking back in 1997 was that China was changing fast and that China would probably move towards a more Western democratic form of government over time. And so that by 2047, you know, that wouldn't be a problem. But that scenario has never seemed further away. Yes, and I think two things have happened. In 1997, when Britain handed Hong Kong back to China, that was kind of the high point of the ascendancy, in a way, of the Western idea. And it was sort of after the end of the Cold War, the Berlin Wall had fallen, and Francis Fukuyama said it was the end of history, all of that. And it was, the, it was kind of the high moment of, uh, you know, of the West, Tony Blair, Bill Clinton, and they thought that the rest of the world was going to fall into line and follow all of this. Then, after the turn of the century, you had the uh, wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, which undermined the moral authority of the West. And you also then had the financial crash in 2008, which undermined the uh, kind of performance legitimacy, as it were, of the of the West, so the, the, the efficiency of the system. And so uh, throughout a lot of the uh, the rest of the world, people started to think, well, maybe this system is not the best one. And nowhere was this idea stronger than in China, which during that time was getting richer because of the way their system operated, were able to survive the financial crash much better than Western countries because they were able to, you know, to turn all the, on all of the levers of the state to ensure that that, were to happen, that was going to happen. So already even before Xi Jinping came to power 10 years ago or so, already China was feeling more confident. And then Xi Jinping brought uh, an even more assertive approach to Chinese governance and uh, was presenting the idea of China uh, sort of being a kind of world leader as you know in the future. So I think that right now, if you look at it today, most people that I would speak to in China, ordinary people I would speak to in China, even if they have, uh, you know, if they're unhappy about various aspects of the system they live under here, they don't start telling me that they want a system just like in the West. They're very aware of problems in the West. That's different, by the way, in Hong Kong, where everybody is nostalgic for the system as it was before. Like practically everybody that you meet, even though they didn't have democracy under the British system, they still think you know they have their freedoms and that's what they liked. But that's just not true. So, so you're right that we're further away from the idea of uh, China becoming a Western-style democracy. Having said that, Things are in flux all the time. So China changes all the time. It's If you look at the history of China since the revolution in, in uh, 1949, uh, you'll see uh, that almost every decade something really big and 
tumultuous has happened, whether that's, you know, the Cultural Revolution or the opening up uh, in the 80s, uh, you know, and or Tiananmen Square and the crackdown and then the opening up again and then Xi Jinping. So there's no reason to believe that, that uh, you know, that things won't change again. But I just think they probably won't change in the direction of becoming a Western-style democracy. But certainly even as we speak in the last few days, we've had these this meeting between Xi Jinping and uh, Joe Biden in San Francisco, where they appear to be putting the uh, China-US relationship on a better footing. So things can change, but we're certainly far away from, I think, what people were imagining in '97. Well, now you talked about Xi Jinping's assertiveness. You know, do you think that could tip over into something more? Do you think it's possible that China could ever just rip up the 1997 agreement and say, look, Hong Kong is part of China and it's going to have the same laws and the same economy as China and, you know, we can all just get on with it now, Hong Kong? There's one reason why they won't, I think, and that's because it's not in their interest. Hong Kong, even after it came back into China, it retained its autonomy in lots of ways. So it's not just that they've got their own judicial system. They also have their own currency. They've got their own central bank. And this is important because it's regarded. So, for example, it's got its own separate membership of the World Trade Organization and all financial organizations. Hong Kong is, after New York and London, is the third biggest financial services center in the world. And so it's a huge center of global capital. And the only reason it can do that is because international finance accepts that the rule of law operates. So in other words, that if you have a dispute about money there, that is going to be adjudicated in a court that's transparent. And so the autonomy of Hong Kong is necessary for it to continue to fulfill that function. Now, that function is very important for China, because one of the benefits for China has been that even after the opening up, and as China became more of a market economy, it's still the government kept control over lots of things, like, say, uh, there are financial capital controls. You can only move a certain amount of money, like something like $50,000, out of the country every year. And so there are various other kinds of ways in which uh, capital is controlled within mainland China. And obviously, it's, you know, you don't have the rule of law in the same sort of way. But because of Hong Kong, China had access uh, to the entire global financial system. And so people have compared it to a kind of a, a sort of an electricity current converter that you sort of, you know, it attaches the Chinese system to the system in the rest of the world. And that's very, very important in terms of the functioning of the Chinese economy. So the price of China going too far in uh, removing or undermining Hong Kong's autonomy could be that the rest of the world decides Hong Kong isn't autonomous anymore. And so we're not going to recognize it as an independent uh, financial entity. Now, we're quite far away from that happening. And so one of the things that China is trying to do, you know, it's constantly reassuring people, particularly people in business, that the national security law is only about national security. Where money is concerned and finance, nothing has changed. And so they're kind of saying, you know, in any kind of business dealings, the old system, the common law system is safe as houses. Just don't stray into anything political and you're fine. Now, a lot of Hong Kongers, of course, aren't taking a great deal of comfort from from that reassurance from China because one obvious and inevitable consequence of the crackdown on freedoms in Hong Kong has been that thousands of people have left and they've moved to Taiwan, the island that's independent in practice. But, of course, that China also claims 
belongs to it. The Chinese government and Xi Jinping, they've made no secret that their goal is to reclaim Taiwan. Taiwanese people, they've shown no desire for that. Do you think the example of what happened in Hong Kong will influence that dynamic and will strengthen Taiwan's resistance to unification with China? Well, Taiwan is self-governing and uh, it's not independent and uh, and it's not likely to declare independence. But China has always said it wants to reunify with Taiwan and that that is inevitable and is definitely going to happen. It has an influence on what happens because the idea was that one country, two systems would also apply to Taiwan. If when Taiwan uh, reunified with China, that you'd also have one country, two systems. And now that uh, the Taiwanese look at what's happened to that in Hong Kong, they're very wary. And China actually saw an example of this in 2019. There were presidential elections coming up in uh, early 2020, as there are in coming January in Taiwan. And it looked like the opposition candidate, who was Beijing's favorite candidate in Taiwan, was about to win those elections. But then you had the crackdown on the democracy protests in Hong Kong, and everything flipped in Taiwan. Because people in Taiwan looked, they saw what was going on, and they thought, we don't want that. And they went for the more assertive, uh, more uh, you know, pro-autonomous candidate, an anti-Beijing candidate, uh, who won the election subsequently. So there's no question but that how Beijing behaves towards Hong Kong will have a huge influence if they want to persuade the people of Taiwan that reunification is in their interest, then they really need to persuade them that people in Hong Kong are happy with the way the system operates. Right now, they're not. Thanks very much, Dennis. Thank you. For more Irish journalism, including reports from Dennis Staunton in Beijing, subscribe at irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe. I'm Bernice Harrison. This episode was produced by Declan Conlon. In the news, we'll be back soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.